We're going to be continuing in our, in our series called Do Not Be Silent. We're in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 18. So if you want to grab your Bibles, uh, you can turn there. If you go about two-thirds away through your Bibles where the New Testament begins, that's when Jesus comes onto the scene. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which is the four accounts of, of his life. And then we've got the book of Acts, which is the story of the, the early church and how the Holy Spirit moved and uh, led Jesus' disciples to go out and change the world and proclaim the gospel. And we're focusing in, uh, in particular, on an apostle named Paul, who was an enemy of the church and then had been called into service of God and has been going from city to city uh, proclaiming the gospel. And he's just spent an extended period of time in an ancient city called Corinth. And we're going to pick up the story there today. And uh, really what we're looking at today, what today is all about, uh, in the, uh, the immortal words of William Wallace from Braveheart, Right? It's all about freedom! Right? So, so today we're going to look at this concept of freedom. What does freedom look like in our lives? It's actually a very, uh, it's, it's a, a current event in the news, the, the, the idea of freedom and what does freedom look like. Uh, it's, it's a regular topic of conversation, not only for us as a nation, but us as individuals. And we're trying to figure out what does freedom look like? And as you remember, in, you know, we, we rebelled against British rule. and We threw off the king and we said, we will have no sovereign. We will be a free land. And, and we're a free land and we're in the midst right now of, of what it's like to be a free land. And, uh, and, and it's kind of complicated, right? <laughs> to, have, to have no authoritarian ruler over us means that, that, that as the people, we have to figure out where our freedom intersects with somebody else's freedom and at what point my freedom impinges upon their, their freedom. Uh, if our neighbors decide that they want to really like cut loose the uh, surround sound system that they bought and watch like an epic movie uh, at 10 o'clock at night, the rumbling that they're experiencing, which is bringing them great joy, all of a sudden begins to hinder uh, our freedom and our desire to get a good night's sleep, right? So, so the freedom is always a challenging topic. And, and as Christians, there's an interesting bent on it because most followers of Jesus would tell you that uh, when they came to place their faith in Christ, what they began to experience was an incredible freedom in their life like they've never experienced before, that there's this new just feeling and experience of, of what it means to live in freedom. But if you ask most uh, people on the street who aren't Christians what they think about what it means to follow Jesus and to be a Christian, the Christian religion, freedom is not going to be the first word <laughs> that comes to their mind, right? Uh, they're going to talk about restriction. They're going to talk about how Christianity is a straitjacket, uh, how if it's fun, you can't do it, right? Like uh, that's, that's kind of the outward. So there's this great gap between the inward experience of Christians and the outward perception of the world of what Christianity looks like. And we're going to dig into why some of that exists this morning, we're just going to look at five verses where Paul uh, demonstrates his freedom in two really specific areas. He, uh, in his freedom to, uh, to observe religious uh, ceremony and ritual, and in his freedom in relationships. Um, and both uh, are ones that impact us. You might think, all right, relationships, I get the religious ceremony. I'm not sure I get that, but, but we'll dig into that, and that does actually directly impact each one of us as well. Uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the Scripture. Father, we thank you for this chance to come and to open up your word and to study it and, and just allow it to, to, to shape us and, and change us and, and challenge us. God, we want uh, to draw near to you today. We don't want to just learn about you. We just don't want to learn some facts or, or some new knowledge, but we really want to uh, learn things that are going to change the way that we live our life, that we want to be shaped and molded so that we can be that much closer to you and we can live in a greater level 
of the freedom that Christ purchased for us on the cross. Uh, so help us, Lord. We need your help. We can't do this without the working of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask you uh, to shape our hearts, shape our minds, and shape our actions this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you turn to your Bible uh, to Acts chapter 18, uh, we're going to pick up uh, just looking at verses 18 through 23. So we'll just read through it all together and then we'll, uh, uh, then we'll kind of break it down. But it says this in Acts 18, 18. Uh, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Centre he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church, and then he went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all of the disciples. Uh, so uh, it's one of these passages you look at and you kind of think, all right, this, this is just one of those like moving the story along kind of passages. But there's, there's two things that stand out as odd when you read through this. The first one is that we're told that he was under a vow and so at some point he cut his hair to kind of signify the ending of this vow, that this vow had come to an end and, and that period had come to an end. And, and so we know that Paul went out with this message uh, to the Gentiles. The very message he was bringing them was, hey, you don't have to enter under the law. You don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to become Jewish to become a follower of Jesus. And yet here we see him observing a very uh, religious uh, Jewish uh, ceremony. And so, so that brings some questions. Um, and then the second thing we see is that when he gets to Ephesus, you've, if you've been following along with this, Paul keeps going uh, from city to city, and anywhere that he's well-received, he really like, likes to get in there and just share and grow and see the church expand. And, and when he gets to Ephesus, he speaks with the Jews, and they say, hey, we want you to stick around. We'd like to hear some more about this. And he's like, ah, I can't stay. Uh, I'll be back. <laughs> if God wills, I'll, I'll come back to you. And, so, and he leaves them. And so both of these things are a little bit, they seem a little bit out of character for Paul. They seem a little bit challenging. And um, in doing my research, uh, what I found this week is that there aren't a lot of pastors that really wanted to talk about this very much. Uh, a lot of times I'll prepare my sermon, and uh, then once I have it kind of ready, I'll go and I'll listen to some other guys that I like to listen to just kind of to see what they say or make sure I'm on, on, on track or kind of tracking with the right thing. And, and it was hard to find anybody that preached about this. They usually would just kind of jump onto the next passage. Now, before I pat myself on the back too much for preaching what no one else will preach, right? Um, <laughs> I was, I, was, I was originally going to do this with the next section. That was kind of how we had it grouped out. And so I was going to just touch on this real quickly, but I was really going to preach on the next, the next part that comes. But when we had one of our, our staff meetings, uh, Brian, who's preaching next week, said, hey, you know, I was, I was preparing my passage and I was looking at it. And really the end of your passage really like connects with my passage in a way where it kind of makes sense cohesively to do those together. And I took a look at it and I was like, yeah, it's like, Actually, you're right. That, does, that, that makes more sense. So you take the end of mine and, and, and connect it in with yours, and I'll just preach on these five verses. And so then I was like, oh, man, <laughs> what am I going to do? No. Um, but really, I was, I'm, I'm grateful uh, that God did that in that way because uh, it allowed me to see something that I probably would have just skipped over if, uh, if I hadn't have dug into it. And so we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at this uh, freedom of religious expression. We're going to look at the freedom of relationships. And so the first thing is this idea of the freedom of religious expression. So as I mentioned there, it said that, that Paul was coming to the end of a vow, and he cut a hair, his hair as a signifier of the end of this vow. And so uh, that leads us to believe that this was some form of a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow was a vow that 
the Israelites would take uh, different times. You guys remember Samson, uh, who had the long hair with Delilah, and then she cut his hair. Samson, it was prophesied over him that he would be a Nazarite from his birth. So from the time he was born till the day he died, that he was to remain uh, within this Nazarite vow his whole entire life. And there's others uh, that came that same way. The word Nazarite has in it this idea of one who is set apart or one who's consecrated to the Lord. And so, so Samson was set apart from his birth uh, to the Lord. He was a Nazarite from his birth. Uh, but in the book of Numbers, uh, there's actually a description of, of what you're supposed to do in a Nazarite vow. And so if you, if you flip over there, I'm going to do it just to prove that it can be done, right? So you flip over Genesis, Exodus, Numbers. So it's, uh, it's the third book of the Bible. We're going to go to Numbers chapter 6. It's not going to be on the screen. Um, but in Numbers chapter 6, there's a whole chapter that's really devoted to explaining what the Nazarite vow is. And, and listen to some of the detail of it. It says, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink, and shall not drink any juice or grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall not let the locks of his hair of his head grow long. And then it continues on. It talks about that you can't be in contact with a dead body. And if you're accidentally in contact with a dead body, like you're there just kind of hanging out and the guy next to you just drops dead, there's like procedures that you have to do to get through that. And, and so, but these were a, a vow. There were seasons and times of feasts and fasting and, and different religious observance uh, within the nation of Israel. But God said, hey, if you're in a season where you just want to set yourself, you want to make a special vow to the Lord in order to draw near and to know him better, here is how, here's, this, here's the process for doing that. And so what we see is Paul observing um, this process uh, or some variation thereof uh, from the book of Numbers. And so it's a, an expression uh, of, of his traditional Jewish faith. And so we have to look at that and kind of say, okay, well, um, I thought Paul was saying that we're not bound by the law, that we're free from the law. So why is he now then going back to the book of Numbers and, and, and observing what was laid out there as far as taking a vow? And, and, and Paul's own words are probably some of the most helpful in understanding this. And so listen, I'm just going to read a couple of these to you. In, in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17, he says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all of the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the remarks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Over in Colossians 2.16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so what Paul's consistent teaching was is that, hey, if you were raised Jewish and you were operating within the Jewish church, you don't have to stop being Jewish to start following Jesus. Jesus is the completion of what you've believed. Uh, but if you're Greek or you're, or you're not a part of the, of the Jewish faith, you don't have to become Jewish in order to receive salvation through, Jewish, uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, there's much 
in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament that is going to help you to know God better and to grow closer to him and that is, and that is informative and that will help you to live a life that pleases and honors him. But salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ alone, not through circumcision, not through observing religious festivals or feasts or any of these things. That's not how you uh, are made right with God. You're made with right with God because of what Jesus has done. And he's very consistent in explaining that. And so, um, so here's, here's, the, here's a way to kind of like process it uh, in an everyday way. Uh, many of you know that I really love coffee. It's like one of the things that, that I uh, enjoy in life um, above most others. And so I've got every way of brewing coffee that you can imagine at our house. I've got the French press. I've got the Chemex. I've got the uh, Italian like espresso thing that you put on the burner. Uh, we've got a Verismo system. We've got a Keurig system. We've got an old school coffee maker. Like any way you can make coffee, I'm prepared to do it and do do it quite often. And, um, and so uh, I really enjoy it. But I realized over the past couple months, I was just like, man, my, I feel like my metabolism's messed up. Like I'm tired all the time. I'm drinking like two, three, four cups of coffee a day. Like this probably isn't good. I probably need to take a break. And so I felt like that for about a month before I did anything about it. But, but this Friday, I finally said, all right, Friday morning, I'm not, I'm not going to drink any coffee. So didn't drink any coffee all day Friday. Took like three naps. But <laughs> didn't drink any coffee all day Friday. Uh, and then yesterday, I didn't drink any coffee all day Saturday, and I felt I was starting to feel better. I didn't drink any coffee this morning. You guys can see I'm wired, so it's, it's good. I'm, I'm starting to reset. So, um, but the question is, am I now free from coffee because I, I, two and a half days I'm out of it? No, I'm not really free uh, because every time I walk by, when I walk downstairs this morning, I could smell it. I was like drawn. I had to like resist, right? Like I, I'm not free from coffee. I'm just abstaining for the time being. True freedom would look like I wake up in the morning, I'm like, yeah, I feel like having coffee today, and I drink it. And then the next morning I wake up, and I'm like, yeah, I don't really need it. I feel awake. I don't, uh, right? I've never experienced that in my life. But if I get to that point, <laughs> I will know that I am then free from coffee. Um, and, and that's what it looks like for, for Paul here, that Paul's experiencing religious freedom. He looks at his traditions that he was raised in. He was raised, he said, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Like, I was raised in the Jewish tradition. There's many things that, um, that help me draw closer to God in it. And I recognize those things don't make me right with God. These ceremonies and rituals and taking a Nazarite vow, none of that is going to make me right with God. None of that is going to earn my salvation. But, um, but I see value in it. It, uh, it helps me to feel and draw closer to the Lord. And because of that, I have the freedom to partake in it without risking the fact that I'm going back under the law. And so there's a, there's a real practical uh, exploration of this, uh, and, and it's with uh, what's coming up this week, which is the beginning of the season of Lent. Uh, Lent is starting this week, so Ash Wednesday is this Wednesday. Um, just uh, to put you on the spot here, how many of you guys grew up in a, in a church tradition where you celebrated Lent, you had Ash Wednesday, and you would go and, and get the ashes, right? So, uh, so many of you are very familiar with this, which is what I expected. Um, and so Trina actually asked me a couple weeks ago, she's like, what, uh, what's the reason why, uh, why some people don't eat meat on Fridays? Uh, during Lent. And I was like, well, as your pastor, husband, and religious scholar, I have no idea. I, <laughs> I could make something up, but, um, but I'm going to have to do some research on that. I, off the top of my head, I don't, I don't really know. And so in the research that I did, what I found is that um, it, it kind of came into tradition because Jesus sacrificed his flesh on a Friday on the cross. And so the regular observation of not eating flesh uh, on Friday was a way of entering into uh, what Jesus had done. And so there was, a, there was a good foundational reason behind it in the beginning. For a long time in the Catholic Church, it was prohibited uh, Fridays all year, all year round. You could never eat meat on a Friday. Um, more recently, it's, it's gone down to just during the Lenten season that you can't do it on Fridays. And um, I don't claim to be a uh, 
religious expert in really any denomination. So, uh, so some of you guys could, could school me in on some of that. But uh, my point with this is, is that um, Lent is something that's observed uh, by the Catholic Church, uh, by many uh, Protestant denominations, so the Lutheran Church, Methodist Church, some Presbyterian uh, denominations, all uh, do this, and they celebrate it uh, together. And, um, and, but it's one of those things, it's not in the Bible. There's no, there's no Bible verse that you can point to that talks about Lent. And so for each one of us, we've got to look at this and say, okay, this is something that a lot of Christians do. Is it something that I should be doing? Am I, am I missing out? Should I, should, should I be doing this? What's the story? And so let me just break down a little bit for you. You know, there's some real pros that come with an observation of Lent. Um, it, it's a time of voluntarily entering into a time of fasting or going without something in order to identify with the sufferings of Christ in, in preparation for the Easter season. And so from that standpoint, it's, it's really good, and it follows in the historical tradition of the Bible where uh, there were seasons where, uh, where people would fast to either seek out uh, God's protection or favor or as a way of saying thank you to God for what he had done for them. And so if you remember in the story of Esther, that Esther called for the nation to fast uh, for several days before she went before the king and, and asked him to save the Jewish people. And that was a, that was a good thing. That was right, that uh, the nation of Nineveh, when... Uh, when uh, when Jonah went to the city of Nineveh and he told them, hey, God is going to destroy this land, that the, the pagan city of Nineveh uh, issued a fast, and they all fasted before the Lord to say, God, we, are, we repent, we're sorry, we're not going to eat, we're asking for you to, to relent from this coming judgment. Uh, so there's, there's all kinds of historical uh, evidence in the Bible of, of times and seasons of fasting that are good, that are done corporately by, by a big group. And so from that sense, uh, Lent is good in that it, it connects with that, that tradition. Um, it's also a unifying event for, uh, for the Christian and the Catholic Church around the world. Uh, ecumenical is the big word, that, uh, the churchy word, right, where it's like something that people can kind of do together, and it's kind of a unifying thing with all the different things. And so, so that's, that's a positive thing. And if you do the Ash Wednesday thing where you have the ashes on your head all day, that's a really public witness. Like, that's a bold thing to go into your workplace and say, like, hey, I'm identifying with Jesus Christ. I'm a Christian. I've got these ashes on my head. It's a, it's a you know, you're going to the grocery store, and you're going to the Starbucks, and, well, I'm not going to Starbucks because I'm not drinking coffee, but, uh, but you guys might, right? And so uh, you're putting yourself out there, right? And so there can be a lot of really good, positive things that come out of uh, the observation of Lent, in addition to the fact that it, that it connects with the historical traditions of the church. So why doesn't Riverside <laughs> traditionally observe Lent, and why don't we do an Ash Wednesday service? Uh, well, the reason is this. When we were planted, we recognized when we came to this area that this is an area that's steeped in religious tradition. And sometimes religious tradition can take the place of an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a temptation to think that because you're in the boat, uh, that, that, that you're going to the right place. But um, that's a weird analogy, but hopefully you understood what I meant. Um, but, but we recognized that we wanted to strip down. When we set up Riverside, we were very intentional about saying, hey, we want to strip away everything that, that, that can be a distraction from people having a direct relationship with Jesus Christ and, and really valuing Scripture. And so some of the, the negatives that I see in, in, in an observation of Lent is this, that um, it, it subtly communicates that Christian faith is a blend of God's Word plus religious tradition, Right? So if you want to be a Christian, you, uh, you study this, and you know this, and you, and you follow this, and there's also a bunch of other uh, tradition things that, that you have to go along with as well. And so let's say uh, someone was a new believer, and uh, you said, oh, hey, man, it's so exciting that you're following Jesus now. Hey, guess what? Next week is Lent. That's going to be awesome. We're going to, uh, you go, and they take ashes, and they put it on your forehead, and then you, you abstain through things. And, and so the person would be like, wow, that sounds 
weird, but kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. Can you show me? Like, I want to know, I want to know more. Like, show me in the Bible. I want to study this. And they, well, no, no, it's not in the Bible. Um, but, you've, you know, it's just kind of a traditional thing that we've done, right? So, so it kind of, it can be confusing for people to say, okay, some things we do are in the Bible. Some things are outside of the Bible. And so that, that could be a negative in that it communicates that our faith is, is based on God's word plus religious tradition. Uh, another challenge is that it just becomes a way of connecting with the, the traditions of our forefathers without actually feeling those same beliefs ourselves. I just recently started reading uh, this book, uh, some radio addresses from uh, Jay Gresham Macon uh, back in the 1930s, and it was a season where uh, the liberal uh, church movement was like really, uh, there, there was a lot going on, and people were questioning the deity of, of Jesus, and, and what he complains about here is that he says that there were people that would actually say, no, I believe in the deity of Jesus, I believe Jesus was God, but when they said that, they didn't really mean that they believed in the deity of Jesus. What they meant is, I know that my grandfather believed that Jesus was God, and so when I say that Jesus is God, I'm really kind of connecting with that spirit and that, that feeling and that essence of what he felt when he said it back when he believed it. And so, so listen to this quote uh, that, that he shares related to that. He says, uh, but the trouble is that ordinary people in the church are being deceived. They hear a man repeating the creeds. He seems to be repeating them with the utmost fervor. He's particularly fervent in expressing his belief in the deity of Christ, and they simply assume that he means by the deity of Christ what people have always meant by it. And so they tolerate him in the church, and they put him in a position of authority, and time goes on, and many such men are put into positions of greater and greater authority, and they undermine the faith of the church, partly by their words, but more particularly by their silence. A deadly vagueness gradually affects the church's witness. The young people of the church are not soundly indoctrinated. People do not know what is wrong, but the church loses its power. Finally, the mask is thrown off. The people who really believe in the Bible and in the creed of the church and who are dead in earnest about that belief are treated as troublemakers. The church sinks down into a merger with the world. That has been the process in many churches of our day, but it is not in that way that we believe in the deity of Christ. When we say that we believe in the deity of Christ, when we repeat the great creeds, we are not just using a form of words that meant something to somebody long ago. No, we are saying something that we do honestly hold true ourselves. We're not just giving expression to the historic faith of the church, but we are giving expression to our faith. We are saying that the historic faith of the church is what we ourselves believe. So what he's saying there is that um, that there's a real danger in getting up and saying the words and doing the ceremony disconnected from an actual, intentional, real belief in what we're saying. And so, um, so if Lent uh, is connected, if Ash Wednesday is connected to an authentic, genuine belief in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who came and died for our sins and is a way of entering into uh, a, a season of identifying with his sufferings, then that's a really good thing. But if it's a season of doing what my parents did and my grandparents did and my grandparents did and their grandparents before them, if, it, if it's just like, hey, I'm just, I'm just kind of going along. This is what we do. This is kind of how our family operates. Then there's a real danger in that and that it, that it, that it weakens um, the witness, right? I mean, if, if you're going to put the ash on your forehead, then you better make sure you're living in a manner that's worthy <laughs> of the name Christian, right? That, that you recognize that you're putting a, a bullseye on you, and people are going to be watching to see how you, you know, uh, can you imagine something worse than walking into work and somebody being like, what? You are a Christian? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so, right? So you, 
so, so that's, that's a challenge. There's a couple of things I would point out. One is that, that it communicates, uh, you know, possibly that uh, it's, uh, it's the external that matters and not just not the internal. But Jesus said it's, it's what comes out of someone that defiles them, not what goes into them. And so, um, so depending on uh, how you approach it. And the last thing that I'll point out is that um, what I would call the Mardi Gras effect, right? <laughs> Mardi Gras is this big, raucous, crazy party that happens right before Lent because it's kind of like, hey, we're about to go into a season of, of like holding back, so let's not hold back, right? Let's, let's go crazy, let's party it up, let's drink, let's do whatever because, because soon we're going to have to like stop doing all that, so we better get it out of our system, right? And that's just, as Christians, we say that's not how we're supposed to live. That, that says that the partying, that's normal, and then we go into this abnormal season of restraint, and then we get back to normal life. But, but for us as Christians... Every day is meant to be consecrated to the Lord. Every day is meant to be set apart to the Lord. That doesn't diminish certain seasons where we have uh, a season of fasting. Uh, hey, I would encourage you guys, if you've never fasted in your life, like read up on it biblically, and, and, and to partake in a fast is a really good and powerful and important thing. Uh, if it's done as a way to draw closer to the Lord, it's a season where you say, hey, every time I feel that pang of hunger in my stomach, it's going to be a reminder of like, oh yeah, I, I need to pray. I need to seek the Lord. And so it's this continual physical reminder to be seeking after the Lord, that, that, that can be a really good thing. Uh, but when it gets stripped away from its meaning, it just becomes ritual. And so here's the question I have for you. When you approach these sorts of things, do you approach it the way Paul did? Uh, or, or, or are you enslaved uh, to religious tradition? Because from Paul's standpoint, he would say, hey, you can absolutely uh, observe Lent. Uh, that can be a great thing if it's connected to, to your heart and your desire to know God and to draw more closely. It could be a great season where you draw close to your Lord and you prepare your heart uh, for the Easter season. That can be great, and you can do that with a clean conscience and, and total joy, and you're not works salvation, and you're not putting yourself under the law. And if that's where you are today, if you grew up and if you raised your hand and said, yeah, I grew up in that tradition, and if that's a meaningful and powerful tradition to you, absolutely. You can observe Lent, and uh, we're not going to have a, an Ash Wednesday service here, but there's lots of churches in the area that, that do them, and they would welcome you, and they would invite you to come and, and to participate in that. Um, in fact, that's, that's one of the things even the Catholic Church welcomes whoever wants to come on Ash Wednesday. It's, it's, it's one of these really open things. And so um, I would encourage you that if that's the, the conviction of your heart of like, wow, I think that would be really powerful, and that would help me to draw closer to God, and, and um, um, I know it's not going to earn my salvation, but... Um, then you can experience your freedom in that. And, and if you say, hey, you know, that's really interesting to hear all that, but, uh, but that's not part of my tradition. I'm not sure that it would be meaningful for me, for me. I'd like to draw near to the Lord, but I'll probably do it in a different way. You have the freedom to do that as well, that, uh, that that's where religious freedom comes in. Now, there are things. Later on today, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. There's scripture that we can point to and say uh, where Jesus told us to do this, that this is something that, that, that we were commanded to observe. Baptism is something that we're commanded to observe. So there's a difference between observing the things that, that we're commanded to do in the New Testament church uh, and things that have developed as tradition. So here's my question for you. Are you relying on any sort of religious action or activity to be right with God? Do you think in order to be right with God, you have to do uh, religious rituals, ceremony, or the things that you feel like that you have to do, and, 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 and if you don't do it, that you won't be right with God? I want to encourage you to, to embrace the freedom that you have in Christ. On the flip side of it, I want to challenge you. Uh, are you judgmental about other people? <laughs> on Wednesday, when you see people walking around with ashes on their head, we look at them and be like, oh, they're, they're into works righteousness. They're traditionalists. They don't even know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. If, if that's what you say, if that's what your heart is, uh, then, then you're on the wrong path. 
that you've entered into a, a judging attitude, which is wrong. You don't know that person's heart. You don't know, um, you don't know their relationship with God, and you don't know whether they're doing that as, as a form of traditionalism or as a way to draw near to the Lord who they love and serve. And so we've got to be very careful about being judgmental in our spirit. Each one should do what's right, um, uh, as, Paul, as Paul includes, uh, according to the convictions of our heart when it comes to these things. Last thing, as I already mentioned, are there spiritual disciplines that you could freely engage in in order to draw closer to God? Is God challenging you? Like, yeah, I, I really should look into fasting. I think maybe God's calling me to spend a season in fasting. And it could be fasting of food. It could be a fasting of, uh, you could say, hey, I'm going to fast. Uh, I'm not going to watch any TV for a certain period of time, and I'm going to use that time to study the Bible because I feel like I don't have time to study the Bible. Uh, is it, is it going to be, you know, there's a, there's a million different ways that you can fast and you can abstain from something for the intent purpose of drawing near to the Lord. And that's a, that's a good thing, and that's something that, um, that I would encourage you to consider. The second half of this that we see is, is the freedom that Paul had in relationships. And it's, this picks up in verse 19. It says, they came to Ephesus, and when he left them there, uh, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So it's, it's interesting that, that just because they asked him to say he didn't stay, he didn't feel like he had to say yes, right? He had the freedom to stay, but he also had the freedom to go. A lot of us struggle with this. If somebody asks you to do something, it makes it really hard for you to say no because uh, you want people to like you. You don't want them to be disappointed. It's, um, you know, uh, a million different reasons. And I'm painfully aware of this as, as the pastor of a church. I recognize that as the pastor, if I grabbed five of you at random and I asked you to do something, three of you would probably say yes just because you felt like you couldn't say no. Um, and, and sometimes the church gets built that way, but it's not a healthy thing because all of a sudden then you have people working in the children's program who don't like working with kids at all, but they, they didn't know how to say no. And you have people leading small groups who, who don't really want to lead a small group, but they just didn't know how to say no. And so our desire here at the church is we don't want anybody serving in a place where they don't feel uh, called and they don't feel uh, equipped uh, to do it. Uh, but with that with that out that I'm giving you there, I do also want to encourage you that if this is your church home and this is where Jesus has called you to serve him, that you are called to serve. And there's a need for you to serve here in the church. And we want you to serve, but we want you to serve where you can have joy in serving. We want you to say, I get to go do that, not I have to go do that. Uh, because if you do that, yeah, it says in Bible that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. But when we do it that way, our yes just becomes a slow, painful no, right? We say yes, but our heart's never in it. And sometimes we don't show up. And we're, we kind of have a bad attitude when we do, right? And, and, and it's just a, a slow, pain, uh, you know, a quick, a quick painful no is better than a long, slow, painful no, right? Um, it also shows a level of humility. Sometimes to be able to say no, it just takes humility because Paul was willing to say like, hey, this church can be planted in Ephesus and it doesn't just have to be me doing it. I'm going to leave Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus. And what we see unfold is a really, really good, healthy church in Ephesus, when Paul writes to Corinth, he says, hey, some of you guys say you're with me, some of you say you're with Apollos, some of you say you're with this other guy. It's not about all these different, it's about Jesus. But we don't see that in the letter to the Ephesians because that was kind of part of the DNA from the beginning. Paul came, proclaimed the gospel, told them the truth. He left Priscilla and Aquila there. Uh, later on, we're going to see that Apollos comes and preaches there. Then Paul comes back, and through this multiplicity of leaders that are pouring into them, their allegiance is to Jesus alone. But sometimes we don't have the humility to say no to something because we think that we're the only one that can do it. 
You know, do you ever, are you one of these uh, people that when you go on vacation, you have to take your laptop with you for work because you're the only one that can file that report the way that it needs to be reported? Or you can, you, you know, nobody can check the numbers quite the way that you can, right? Like, I don't know your job, so maybe that's true about you, but um, sometimes we kind of puff ourselves up and it makes us feel like our, we're, we have greater value and worth because nobody else could possibly do what we can do. Uh, but the reality is that good leaders are going to train up other people to do the things that they're doing so that, uh, so that, that they can take that and they can run with it and maybe they can even do it better and then it frees you to do other things. So there's a lot to be said about this freedom in relationship. Not doing things under compulsion, but doing things because it's where God is leading you. Look at the example of, of Jesus in this. Uh, right? Uh, people had expectations of Jesus all the time. Right? They said, hey, Jesus, do a miracle. Make some more bread and fish for us. We want some more of that. And Jesus said, no, you're after the sign. You're not after, you're not after the Father. You just want what I can give to you. Right? Or they say, Jesus, come be our king. Or Jesus would heal and, and preach. And they'd say, stay here. Stay longer with us. And he said, no. Jesus was always, he always understood uh, that his mission was greater than any of the good things that he could have done. He could have gone to just one town and just ministered there his entire time, and it would have been good, and those people would have benefited. But he understood that he was called to something greater. Um, there's a book, it's called, uh, it's called The Best Yes, I think. Is that what it's called? Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of about the idea of saying, like, say no to some good things so that you can say yes to the greater things. And that's always a requirement. None of us have unlimited time, and so we have to have the freedom and the ability uh, to say no. We look at Jesus' example also related to the, the religious freedom that Jesus experienced, right? That, that Jesus completed and perfected the law. That Jesus, think about it, on the last night of freedom that he had, how did he spend that time? What was he doing? He's observing Passover with his disciples, right? He was observing a religious feast, a Jewish religious feast, the Passover. Um, and so Jesus valued, Jesus lived as an observant Jew his whole life. Um, he observed, but yet the Pharisees would come in and critique him and say, hey, why are you healing on the Sabbath? That You're not supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, hey, the, the man isn't made for the Sabbath. Sabbath is made for man. That Jesus understood how to walk in religious freedom and to, to do the things that honored God, to do the things that drew, uh, helped him to draw close to God, um, but not to be religiously controlled or to do things without reason and purpose. And he's our greatest example in that. And, and what I ultimately want you to see is that Jesus had perfect freedom, and his freedom led him to choose the cross. Uh, the, the one in, in the history of the world who lived with perfect freedom in relationship and religion and everything used that freedom ultimately to go and to give his life for us. And so I would ask you, what are you doing with your freedom? How are you using the freedom that you have? Do you experience the freedom that Christ gives you? And if so, is it leading you on the path that he chose, a path of, 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 of self-denial, a path of serving and loving others? Jesus purchased that freedom for you at the cross, and, and, and it's up to us to use that freedom well. As we conclude today, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. As I said, there's a, there's a command in Scripture to, to, to do this, to honor this, to observe this. And what I really want to encourage you today, and we always encourage you this way, is that um, if you come and partake of the bread and you rip off a piece and dip it in the, the cup and eat it, don't do it as, as part of participating in the grand religious tradition of your ancestors, right? Don't do it because your grandmother did it. Don't do it because your mom did it. Uh, don't do it because you're identifying with this emotional religious feeling uh, that they had. Do it because you are professing that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. 
and that rose from the grave so that you could be forgiven and that you could spend eternity with him. If that's the profession of your heart, that's what you believe, then you're invited to come to the table, to take the bread, to dip it in the cup, and to, and to take it. The Bible encourages us not to take it in an unworthy manner, and so we're encouraged to take some time and to uh, confess sin if we have sin, to confess it, to repent. Just take a moment and say, God, search my heart. Even if you, you say, hey, I don't come in with anything burdening my heart, say, Lord, search my heart. If there's something that you want me to be aware of, if there's an area where I've, I'm sinning, if I'm, not, if I'm not walking with you, show it to me so I can confess it and lay it down before you. Um, but then I also want to encourage you, there's, there's no one here in the room who's worthy of this. None of us is worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so if you feel unworthy, then, then you're right. <laughs> you are unworthy, but he came to die for us when we were unworthy. And you should be encouraged by taking of this, recognizing that he died even when you were 